Bless his holy name. Bless his holy name. How can blood red as crimson turn us as white as snow? Only because of the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Bless his holy name. We ask that you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, the 19th chapter, verses 1 through 10. That's the book of Acts, the 19th chapter, verses 1 through 10. And if you found a sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by saying, he will wash away all our guilty stings. And would you stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word? Acts 19, 1 through 10. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they begun to, began to speak in tongues and prophesize. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took his disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of two Rainus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. You have just heard the word of God. Let apply it to your soul as if it was the word of God. You may be seated. As we're walking through the book of Acts, we find ourselves this morning in chapter 19. And there are many scenes here that are portraying the way that the gospel of Jesus Christ had impact in Ephesus and really the surrounding regions. 
We'll see in these scenes all the diversity and the significance of Paul's encounter with these various groups in Ephesus. But really, to summarize it quickly, overall, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the preaching of Paul had an amazing impact on this city. Now, this was a city that was profoundly influenced by magic and the cult of the the goddess Artemis and other false religions. Now, Paul's ministry here to these 12 disciples of John, not yet disciples of Jesus in verses 1 through 7, really makes an incredible statement. Apollos had received the baptism of John as well as these disciples, but only when Priscilla and Aquila pulled him aside and they showed him a more accurate way of God. We saw that last week when we were together. Now, Paulus had come to recognize that Jesus was the one to whom John's testimony and John's baptism was pointing towards. Apollos needed this further instruction to become a truly effective witness for Jesus Christ. However, the disciples whom Paul met in Ephesus had received only John's baptism and did not receive any other instructions. They did not understand John's purpose or John's mission. They needed to know more. They needed to know more than just having John's baptism. They needed to be baptized in the name of Jesus, and they needed to understand that being baptized in the name of Jesus guides our behavior and also how we speak. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what an incredible promise that the blood of Christ will remove all our guilty stains. that our acceptance of Christ also comes with the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Bless us today as we deal with some issues, some bad teaching concerning baptism and the Holy Spirit, and that we recognize the fullness we have in your Son when we accept him by faith. It is in the precious name of your Son, and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said amen. Amen. Looking at verses 1 and 2 here, let me repeat them for you. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Okay, this is our dilemma here. We find out that Apollos is now at Corinth and Paul took another way and he's gone through the interior region and he has ended up at Ephesus. He's there in the administrative city of all the province of Asia, which is Ephesus. 
You know, Ephesus was known as the commercial center of this region. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the empire. Ephesus came into the Roman Empire's domain in 133 B.C., but really it wasn't elevated to its current status where we are in the passage here until the reign of Augustus. At that time, Ephesus went through incredible growth because it had an advantageous situation. What was that advantageous situation, Pastor? It was a location for many of the fertile ports and land routes throughout the region. In fact, it was called one of the greatest cities in Asia. Now, there was a lot of false religion, a lot of false cults, a lot of black magic going on there. The temple of Artemis was right outside the city, and it was really known as the chief glory of the city, and later on known as one of the seven wonders of the world. Now, it's four times the size of the Parthenon, where they kept all of their gods, and it was richly decorated with the artwork of the greatest painters and sculptors of their age. And it was known for the practice of magic. And really, you're going to see some of the things, because God is so specific. You're going to see some of the things that God does here in Ephesus. He does to counteract their desire and their focus on magic. We're not going to see most of that until next week or the week after when we go from 11 to 41. But right now, Luke is telling us about this encounter that Paul has with this unusual group of disciples. So why is this group, why do I say they're unusual? Because the word throughout the book of Luke and Acts, when it comes to disciples, is the word mathetes. But here, Luke qualifies that word he, when he qualifies it, he also challenges their membership in the body of Christ by saying, some disciples. I want you to pay close attention here to what Paul asks, because Paul is also curious about this situation. Look at his question in verse 2. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What is Paul doing here? He's trying to draw them out. He's looking for some evidence of Christian conversion. We see a parallel to this experience of the Samaritan believers back in Acts 8, 14 through 17, which says this. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that, the, that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now this is another unique case. We see that the Lord sovereignty waited 
before there was any manifestation of the full power of the Holy Spirit? And why did he do it in this instant? He did it because there were no apostles there. Philip was an apostle. That's why he waited until Peter and John came because what he wanted to make sure, and you'll see this all the way through Acts, he wanted to make sure that there wasn't an inch of room between how they received the Holy Spirit back in Acts 1, 8 through, 1 through 8 and how they received it to the Samaritans because if they didn't receive it the same way that they received it back in the first chapter, then the Jews would never believe that they were truly part of the church. So this action was only happened to make sure that the Samaritans could be counted and regarded as full members of the one true church. Now, Paul takes his questioning even further. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And the Ephesians uh, disciples answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, that's a problem for me because how could genuine Christians make such a response? Paul is expressing doubt about their spiritual condition when he asked this critical question. And their answers show that they were definitely not full disciples of Christ, but disciples only of John. So how did this happen, Pastor? Well, obviously, they had acquired some knowledge of John's teaching, probably, and I'm not going to say probably, I'm going to say they have acquired some knowledge of John's teaching that was a secondhand source, and they were baptized by someone else rather than having direct contact with John the Baptist himself. That's the only thing that would explain that they did not understand nor they recognized the coming of the Messiah or even the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. You see, there's a missing piece in their profession that could have given them the possession of Christ and the Holy Spirit, which they should have been seeking. Had they dealt directly with John the Baptist, they would have understood that all through John the Baptist's ministry, he's proclaiming that the Messiah has come and that he is the one that came before the Messiah. He baptizes with water, but the Messiah will baptize with fire and the Spirit. Look at Luke 3, 15 through 16. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he, personal pronoun refers to Christ, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the scrap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And Jesus even endorsed the prediction, the proclamation of what John has said. Look at Acts 1, 4 through 5. And while they were staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait 
for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What is Jesus alluding to here? Jesus is alluding to the promise of the eschatological outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was going to be, that had already been shown in Isaiah 44, 3 through 5, in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, in Joel 2, 28 through 29. And when you think about it, it's really surprising that anyone who knew the scriptures very well could ever say that I've never heard of the Holy Spirit. And really what is particularly puzzling to me is that anyone who had dealt with John personally could be ignorant of his teaching on the subject. That's why I'm saying that this is a secondhand knowledge that they have. They need to recognize that Jesus is a Messiah and they will receive the Spirit when they're baptized in his name. Look at Acts 19 and 3. And he said, he's still probing, right? Into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Now this indicates surprise somewhat to Paul that they don't understand that they need to be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ, which is a which is normative if you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 38 through 39 verifies that. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And what's the outcome of that? And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. They then disclosed that they'd only received John's baptism. And we recognize that John's baptism was all predicated on repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Now, I failed to explain this well last week, and it's really haunted me all week long. My explanation was not inaccurate, but it was inadequate. I'm going to try to clean that up here. I want you to turn in your Bibles. I want you to look at the the text here. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 3, 3 through 17. Luke chapter 3, verses 3 through 17. And let's walk through this. And he went into all the regions. He, personal pronoun, refers to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist went into all the regions around the Jordan, proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So this is his mission statement, right? This is why I'm baptizing people. Now, look at four. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophets. Now, the book of Isaiah is for a 
proclaiming and predicting that someone like John will one day come. Okay? Let's go on. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, because this person is coming as a precursor, a person that's preparing us to be able to receive the Messiah that's coming after him, and it starts to tell us here in verse 5 that there are really radical changes that are going to go on because of this appearance of Jesus Christ. Look what it says. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. Isn't that just the opposite? The crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. Now, you really got to get this. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to free, flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. What is he getting at here? He sees these people, these Pharisees and others who are coming towards him seeking baptism. And he says, you snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I know this is not genuine repentance. But you better bear fruits that keep with the repentance that you're claiming. And don't come to me with this legacy that you have Abraham as your father. So you think you're a shoe-in. And then he goes on, look what he says. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now look at this warning that he's giving these Jews. For now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says, you're in peril. You're about to be cut off totally. The axe is at the root of the tree. He brings back up the whole idea. He already told me, bear fruits concerning your repentance. And he says that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. And, and what is done with that tree? It's thrown into the fire. He's talking about hell. And the crowds asked him, what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? Now, I want to show you all these disenfranchised groups are coming to him, and he's telling them what they need to do. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and he said to them, they said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Stop stealing. Soldiers also asked them, 
And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. Stop taking advantage of people. And as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The scraps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor. Now, what did they do? They would take the fork, put it down in the wheat, throw it up in the air. The chaff would do what? Scatter. But the wheat, because it has weight, would fall to the floor, and then you would know that is what you need to take. So he says, if his fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff, he will burn with an unquestioning fire. So there's something incredibly defective about these Ephesian disciples since they did not understand the significance of their baptism. Acts 19 and 4 says, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Paul chooses here to focus on the name of Jesus because the name of Jesus will always symbolize the character of Jesus. He understood that the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit would come once their trust was in Jesus Christ and they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and become Christians. Paul wanted them to understand that John's baptism was a precursor to salvation, but the baptism in the name of Jesus was the prize that they should have been seeking. Why should they be seeking it, Pastor? Because receiving the Holy Spirit grants us power in the name of Jesus. Look at Acts 19 and 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Once again, you know, Luke is a historian. Sometimes he'll give you more information that you need, and sometimes he takes his narrative and he's brief and doesn't record everything that was said. He goes right here and allows Paul to start to rectify the situation so that they can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want you to recognize this is the only instance in the entire New Testament where you see rebaptism. We find out here that this was a unique situation because the sacrament of Christian baptism needs to be performed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but it's also if it's performed in the name of Jesus then the gift of the Spirit is simultaneous. You know, many of our friends in the apostolic religion have blatantly misunderstood this. There is no difference 
whatsoever from being baptized in Jesus' name or being baptized in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing, being baptized in Jesus' name confirms the Trinitarian act of that as well. Acts 2.38, we see Peter here when he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, for me, this is an incredible affirmation that Peter is making sure that we recognize that no other name under heaven or earth given to man can be chosen that we might be saved by being baptized in the name of Jesus indicates our understanding that the person is being baptized by Christ who is his savior. Christian baptism is also done in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see that in Matthew 28 and 19. Being baptized in this manner gives us and identifies us to the the Trinity. We belong to the Father, the Son saves us, and the Holy Spirit indwells in us. Think about it when you pray. We pray in the name of Jesus. We're praying with his authority and asking God the Father to act upon our prayers because we come in the name of his Son, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. So, and if Jesus tells them in what? Matthew 28 19, be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I will agree that you will see the baptism in the name of Jesus in Acts 238, 812, 816, 1048, and 195. But it is still the same. The bottom line is that the name of Jesus confers upon us baptism in the character of the Father and the Spirit and identifies us with his Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as our Savior. So what does Paul do? He takes them right to the place they need to go, Acts 19.6. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began to speak in tongues and prophesize. So we see here, and our apostolic friends have taken this out of context as well. In Acts, there are a couple of times, we saw one earlier where the sovereign God waited until the apostles got there before he allowed the Holy Spirit to be conferred upon them. And they spoke in tongues. And you remember almost every, I think it's only one instance where they did not speak in tongues. But each one of those is confirmed that they received it the same way. It was a climax of the ceremony. But the most important element of this ceremony is that uh, they received a baptism. And they also received the Holy Spirit. Now when you and I come to Christ Jesus by faith, and we, when we receive him, we receive the Holy Spirit simultaneously. It's not a separate act, not something that you have to tarry for. And speaking in tongues is a gift and is not salvific. It does not prove that you are saved, and anyone who doesn't is not saved. 
that, that won't be justified anywhere biblically in scripture. Now, I'm one of the few reformed pastors that doesn't believe that the gifts have ceased. I believe you have to be cautious and watch because I believe God is sovereign. He can do anything that he wants to do and the same thing he did before he can do now. He's immutable. But I know there are many people who have uh, been caught up in the pressure to imitate a legitimate move of God. So we see here, the reception of the Holy Spirit now in our understanding should be a matter of immediate perception that it manifests itself the moment we accept Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Again, we'll see this more when we get deeper into chapter 19, that a lot of this happens in a certain way that God is trying to counteract the magic that they're being overwhelmed with in their false religions, okay? He wants to oppose that. And also, I think in this time that these disciples are in a, they're a transitional group that uh, fully incorporates everybody into the church of Jesus Christ. And once that's been demonstrated, it does not have to be uh, separated anymore because all groups are in the body. Acts 19 and 7 says, there were about 12 men in all. It just shows Luke's interest in numbers. I mean, there's no reason I can see that attributes any special significance to the number 12 here. Uh, it probably indicates that a considerable number of family members uh, with similar beliefs were being brought to Christ. But again, Paul insists that the receiving of the Holy Spirit grants them power in the name of Jesus. Now we're going to see that the Holy Spirit, if we possess the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit should guide our behavior and guide our speech. If you have been saved, it should change the way you act and the way you talk and the way you react and the way you deal with conflict and the way you deal with people. Look at Acts 19 and 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Here he is again. You know, we earlier he said, hey, I'm going away from you guys. The blood is on your hands. I'm going to the Gentiles. But then Paul continues his synagogue ministry. He establishes here again, unlike what happened in Acts, what, 18, 5 through 8, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. 
Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in God together with his whole household, and many of the Corinthians were hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So here again, back in Ephesus, he does the same thing. He's going into the synagogue, and for the first couple of months, or maybe three here, they're receptive to his ministry. He spoke boldly there. And there are three verbs here that really describe the force of his teaching in the synagogue. He spoke boldly. He reasoned with them. He persuaded them. So he took his argument and he coupled them with persuasion and he pressed upon their heart the truth of the scriptures and the fact that the kingdom of God is a reality. And he constantly uses in all of his teaching. Even though there's not an announcement like we just saw back in 18 that he's going to leave the synagogue and not teach Jews anymore, he still, and I've shared with you time and time again, truth will always revoke a response. Truth will draw you or it will drive you away. There's no in-between. It's going to draw you or it's going to drive you away. Look what happens in Acts 19 and 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took his disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Turanus. This lecture hall was a substitute for the synagogue, a place for public teaching. It obviously was larger than the synagogue and allowed for a lot more people to come in. And Paul was carrying the message to them. But when he was in the synagogue, some people, because of their unbelief, became obstinate. They grew hard. They refused to believe. Stop right there. When you don't believe, It's because you refuse to believe. It's not because what you're being taught is not true. You refuse to accept it. You would rather have counterfeit than the real thing. They were unbelieving. And then look what they do. They publicly malign the truth by speaking evil of the way. This whole idea of the way, what was the way? Jesus, they called Christianity before it was called Christianity, or they were called Christians in Antioch, they called it the way. They called it the way because Jesus is what? The way, the truth, and the life. So what they're saying here, they're talking badly about the church and they're doing it in front of the congregation. Once again, it proves that truth will either draw you or drive you away. They were speaking this evil in public. They were being divisive. They disturbed the fellowship. They planted seeds of doubt among the people, and they only grew in their own disbelief. Titus 3, 10, and 11 gives us directions on how we should handle such a problem in the church. 
As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have no more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is what? Warped and sinful and is self-condemned. You don't get in an argument with them. You don't try to condemn. They're self-condemned by what they're doing. What you want to do is stop them from planting seeds of doubt in the hearts of others. So Paul said, enough of this. I'm going to take these who, are, who want to be disciples, and we're going over here with Tyrannus. Paul spent the early mornings engaged in manual labor. I guess he's still making tents. And in the middle of the day, he's teaching and preaching and debating with his clientele so that he wanted to infect them with the truth of the gospel. Think how exciting this must have been. He's in the marketplace. Think about being in Times Square. Think about being on the circle in Indianapolis, and you've got people coming in and out during their lunch, various lunch breaks, and you're speaking the truth to them. In daily discussions, this happened for over two years. This is why it made such an incredible impact. He took it where they were, where they were. And that's how he was able to influence so many people. You know, we have to, the gospel has to be heard even when it's Rejected. It has to be proclaimed. Because you're casting a net and you don't have any idea when you draw it back what you're going to bring in. But you're going to bring in everything that the Lord has intended you to bring in. And you're going to have to deal with those who want to jump out the net or cut a hole in the net. Or talk crazy when they get on a boat. You know? But God is going to take care. He's going to bring his own to himself. Turn for a moment to, you're going to turn in Bibles for this. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 18. First Peter 3, 8 through 18. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Look at those characteristics he's saying that we must possess if we are functioning Christians filled with the Holy Spirit. Further instructions. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Always do the opposite of what Satan expects or what Satan is promoting. If you want to see Satan flee, do the opposite of what he's trying to gird you up to do. You want to see people, some people change? 
Don't return evil for evil, craziness for craziness, insult for insult. Do just the opposite. It goes on here. For whoever deserves to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. You know, you can never take back the rock you threw. You can never take back the words that you have said. You can never regain the time that you have lost. So that means you need to be careful with how you act, what you say, and how you use your time. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. Now look at the contrast here. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteous, righteousness sakes, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. When they ask you, why did you let that person just walk all over you? Why did you let that person talk to you that way? Why didn't you retaliate? Why didn't you uh, confront them again? Why did you not meet them blow to blow? Give them a reason for your hope. What does First Peter tell us in second chapter? That Jesus, can, even though he was reviled, he didn't revile. When he was being treated wrong, he didn't treat others wrong. But he did what? He continued to just... He continued to trust in him who judges justly. So what does that mean? He continued to look at his father who says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. You're not in the repayment business. You're in the pass it on business. You don't take an affront when somebody does something to you. You take an affront when somebody does something to your neighbor. You trust that God is going to take care of you. And then if you're going to be, if you're going to be angry but not sin, it's because someone else is being mistreated. It goes on to say here, yet you do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience. You're not being passive aggressive, okay? If you're being passive in the Lord, you're being passive because you trust him and it's for his sake. So that when you are, I love this, so that when you are slandered, not so that if you are slandered, if you, if you trust the Lord and you work and you're following the Lord, you're going to be slandered. It's got to happen. All those who seek uh, to live a godly life will be what? Persecuted. If you, do, if you get one thing out of the day, 
I want you to learn to embrace what is called the ministry of being misunderstood. Because when you trust God, people are going to misunderstand what you're doing. And they're going to react to it. But you don't, you know, you just recognize that you know what you know and they don't know that you trust explicitly and they don't. And that even if he doesn't do what you believe he will, he is still God. What did the three Hebrew boys say? Even if he does not deliver us, I'm not going to bow to you. I mean, it, it, it exasperates me when people say they're mad at God. How are you going to be mad in the only person that can help you? Okay, he didn't do what I wanted. Okay. He knows better than I know. But I sure am not going to be mad at him. He's the only one that can ever help me get out of anything. It says that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You know, I don't care what anybody says about me as long as it's not true. Because people are going to talk crazy as long as it's not true. That's the only thing I worry about. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. If you suffer for doing evil, okay, that is just a logical consequence. If you suffer for doing good, then what does he tell us again in 1 Peter chapter 2? It is a gracious thing in the sight of the Lord. He goes on, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Brothers and sisters, true baptism in Christ Jesus has to address our behavior and our speech. Paul taught in the hall for two years. And what do you think the outcome of that was? I want to share with you these words that I believe were the outcome of his two-year ministry in uh, Tyrannus Hall. Any true definition of preaching must say that the man who is delivering the message is delivering the message of God. A message for God for those people who have ears to hear. He is an ambassador for Christ. That is, he has been sent, commissioned, and he's standing before the people as a mouthpiece of God and of Christ. In other words, he's not just there merely to talk to them. He's definitely not there to entertain them. 
He is there, and I want to emphasize this, to do something in the lives of those people, to produce results of various kind, to influence their mind and heart through the power of the gospel. He is to influence their emotions. He is to influence their minds. He is to influence their behavior through the very sovereign word of God. Every time you sit under true preaching, it should make a difference in your life. There should be a transaction that happens between the preacher and the listener. There should be a feeding of your soul. Because in the final analysis, this book is soul food because it feeds the very essence of who you are and everything that you can ever hope to become. Everything else is marginalized by this and that you have to seek it with the same intentionality that a newborn baby seeks milk. But then you want to grow up, guys. You don't want to always drink milk. You know, you want to be able to go to Ruth Chris once in a while. So you need to train yourself and train your digestive system that you might handle meat. Yeah, it might challenge you. That's not a time that I don't prepare a sermon that doesn't challenge me at my core, that doesn't remind me, hey, Andy, you are failing terribly at what you're going to preach Sunday. But you know something? I called you to preach it, so go in and then do it. Because you're not just talking to them, you're talking to yourself. So you go in there without shame, believing and trusting that God is the one that's going to be able to make all paths straight in the hearts of those that you are speaking to. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love and praise you and we thank you for this opportunity to come together. Lord, we ask you that you sink this word deep into our hearts and that you dig up all the fallow ground that resides in our heart, replace it with fertile soil and the truth of your word. And then, Lord, we ask that you bring an incredible harvest into our life so that there may be great reaping and continuing sowing in our lives that we might be like an endless spring, an endless fountain that is always uh, being replenished. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen.